So Genesis chapter 42, and reading from verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are never spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we are your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them.
Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Amen. Well, before we spend some time thinking about Genesis 42 together, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. I ask that you would help me to be faithful to you in all that I say, and that you would help us all to be attentive, to listen, and that by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work, applying that the truths that we hear to our own lives and hearts. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have ever been wronged by someone, and you've secretly hoped that one day they would get their comeuppance. I guess a lot of us have been in that kind of situation. It might have been a short-term thing, a relatively small thing. Maybe you've been in a conversation with a group of people and one person has embarrassed you by saying something, whatever it happened to be. And rather than forgetting about it or laughing it off, you've spent the rest of the conversation trying to embarrass them back, looking for the opportunity to get them back for what they've done, to repay them. That's maybe a relatively minor example. Maybe it's been more deep-rooted than that. Maybe someone has really wronged you, maybe even years ago. 
And in your darker moments, you still wonder what it would be like if you only had the chance to repay them for what they did. The desire for a reckoning can be a pretty powerful one. Now, we've been studying the last chapters of the book of Genesis this term on Sunday evenings, and in the passage we're going to be thinking about together this evening, we're going to see exactly that impulse, the impulse for a reckoning that's bubbling under the surface. It won't just be this Sunday evening, it'll be over the next few weeks, we'll see it. And the story so far in Genesis is that back in chapter 37, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. The intervening years weren't exactly easy for Joseph. He was accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He was thrown into prison where he spent the next few years. And last week in chapter 41, we saw Joseph having a meteoric rise from a prison to a palace. He became the equivalent of the prime minister of Egypt over the course of pretty much one morning. And he was immensely powerful, second only in power to Pharaoh. And tonight in chapter 42, the question we're dealing with is how Joseph is going to use that power. See, the narrative returns to Joseph's family back in Canaan. It's the first time we've seen them since chapter 37. And the famine that has struck all of the earth in chapter 41 has unsurprisingly struck Canaan too. We learn in verse 2 that Joseph's family are also at risk of starvation. And so Joseph's brothers are cajoled, as dads are wont to do. They're cajoled by their dad into going to Egypt to buy grain. When they get there, guess who's in charge of the food? Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. What we know so far is that Joseph's brothers have treated Joseph really badly and that Joseph now has the power to make them pay. He holds their lives in his hands. What goes around comes around. And as I mentioned, for readers like us, the tension, that's, well, that's the tension that runs through the rest of the book of Genesis. Will Joseph repay them for what they did to him? And it isn't just us as readers who are waiting for, for an answer to that question, whether there will be retribution or not. We'll see that under our first heading this evening. I should have said there are some headings on the service sheet that you were hopefully handed on the way into the building this evening. It might be helpful to have those open in front of you. First heading this evening, guilty people deserve God's reckoning. Now in Genesis 42, we're flashing 20 years forward following Joseph's uh, being sold into slavery. And from the way Joseph initially treats his brothers when he sees them, it's clear that it isn't a particularly happy family reunion. He pretends that he doesn't recognize them. He speaks to them roughly. He accuses them of being spies, though he obviously knows that they aren't. And he throws them into prison for three days. It's quite the welcome. And if all of that weren't enough, then he effectively takes one of the brothers, Simeon, hostage. 
as a guarantee that they'll come back with their youngest brother, Benjamin. Everything in the text initially seems to indicate that Joseph still understandably feels aggrieved and he's toying with his brothers. That's what it looks like. But one of the surprising things in Genesis 42 is that it isn't just Joseph who thinks that what his brothers did to him was terrible. Nor even is it the reader who's made to think that what the brothers did was terrible. Because it starts to dawn on the brothers themselves. I wonder if you noticed that. Look down briefly to verse 21. This is the brothers speaking to one another. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now remember that all of this is taking place 20 years after the incident with Joseph. And as far as the brothers know at this point, there's nothing that explicitly links what's happening to them with what they did to Joseph. Remember, they still don't recognize who Joseph is. They haven't linked the two things together. And yet they still draw a straight line between the two things, their situation and what they did to Joseph. One is the consequence of the other. And as we move through the chapter, we see that they aren't just talking about some form of what goes around, comes around, some form of kind of karma or anything along those lines. In verse 28, it's made clear that they think someone is behind what's happening to them. God, just look down at verse 28, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? They're guilty of harming Joseph. They've acknowledged that. And they're facing a reckoning for that guilt, an accounting, some kind of repayment. And they recognize that it isn't just Joseph who's bringing about that reckoning. They don't even know that Joseph is who he is. Now, what does any of that have to do with us? Well, to answer that question, let me ask you another question. When we read through the chapters a few minutes ago, which of the characters in Genesis 42 did you most closely identify with? Or let me put it another way. If you could insert yourself into this chapter as anyone, who would you be? My guess is that for most of us, the answer to that question is probably intuitively Joseph, isn't it? The innocent one, the one who has been wronged, pretty much the only one to come out of the chapter with any credit at all. And it's true to say that we can learn some wisdom from identifying with Joseph. We can study his example of forgiveness over the coming chapters and, and, and really be encouraged and inspired by that. But in the big picture of Genesis, the character we're most closely identified with today isn't Joseph. Because remember, we saw last week Joseph was God's appointed rescuer, He was the one God chose to use to save the whole earth from certain destruction through famine. And we saw too that Joseph didn't point to us. He pointed to Jesus. He would offer the whole world rescue from certain destruction. So in Genesis 42, we shouldn't just draw a straight line from Joseph to us. And perhaps uncomfortably, we should draw a clearer line 
from Joseph's brothers to us. Standing before Joseph in Egypt, this ragtag group of men, this guilty group of men, well, they'll become the basis of God's people. God's people are going to come from these guys' families. The 12 tribes of Israel are represented by 10 of these guys. And if you're a Christian, you stand in that family line. This is like an episode of who do you think you are? And that helps us in applying Genesis 42 to ourselves, I think. Firstly, we can apply it in a general sense, seeing that right from the beginning, Joseph's brothers weren't chosen to be the seeds of God's family because they're particularly great guys. Quite the opposite, in fact. They're guilty of something really horrible. They admit it themselves. They deserve some kind of accounting, some kind of justice. And Genesis 42 therefore applies to us generally because we see the kinds of raw materials that God has chosen to work with in the past and that he still chooses to work with. But there's also quite a personal application to each of us, whether we're in that line, whether we're Christians, God's people today or not. Because the brother's situation in Genesis 42 is a picture of the situation that all of humanity finds ourselves in. We each stand guilty. See, notice that though the brothers clearly understand their sin was against their brother Joseph, they also have a sense that it's against God. We see that in verses 22 and 28 as a progression. They see it's against Joseph, but it's also against God. The reckoning from Joseph's blood is from God. And that same principle applies to us. Not that we just deserve payback from whoever we might have wronged in the past. But that there's a sense of justice, a reckoning due from the God of the universe. Now, I'm conscious it's bold enough to claim that someone has done something wrong in our culture, countercultural, I suspect, and to claim that they deserve some kind of reckoning, a punishment for what we've done. Well, that's very offensive, isn't it? But it's a recurring message. We don't just see it in Genesis 42. It's a drum that beats all the way through the Bible that every human being who has walked the face of the planet, barring one, is guilty. And for all that it's countercultural, my guess is that when we're honest with ourselves, many of us can sense that in our own lives. Even if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, there will be situations in your past, I don't doubt, perhaps even situations in your present, which you feel guilty about, and you're ashamed of. Even when we take a moment to reflect on them now, we may well get that feeling of guilt resting in the pit of our gut. Even our own consciences tell us that all is not right with our lives. And the Bible doesn't tell us that none of that matters. It doesn't downplay the seriousness of our actions. It tells us that we are guilty, that our guilt deserves a reckoning, and that one day there will be a reckoning, an accounting for what we've done. We'll stand before the creator God and we'll be held to account. Now that's a pretty stark message. Very conscious of that. And just like Joseph's brothers, everyone sitting in this room are guilty and deserve a reckoning. But what is it that we're actually guilty of? 
See, the brothers trace their guilt before God back to one incident, don't they? <clears throat> trace it back to that 20 years ago, that moment of madness when they sold Joseph into slavery. And we might do the same, even for those of us who do acknowledge some kind of guilt in our lives. We trace it back to one incident, one situation, one event in our lives that makes us feel particularly guilty. Whether it was a harsh word spoken at a wrong time, someone we mistreated or betrayed. But the interesting thing is you read through Genesis 42 is that the brothers' problems run much deeper than one moment of madness. We'll look at that under our second heading this evening. People are more guilty and messed up than we even realize. Now, the middle section of chapter 42 focuses on, on the brothers' time in Egypt. And I think it's probably fair to say that during their time in Egypt, in Genesis 42, the brothers actually look like they're starting to make a bit of progress. <clears throat> They've acknowledged that they've done wrong by Joseph. They even seem to recognize that they deserve some kind of punishment for what they did wrong. But when we look through the rest of the chapter, we start to see that that isn't representative of a growing maturity or some kind of reform in their lives. Right at the very beginning, actually, in verse 1, we get the sense that the brothers aren't exactly bastions of morality and uprightness. This famine has gripped the land, and in verse 1, Jacob says to his sons, why do you look at one another? Or in other words, what are you sitting around here for, waiting to die? But as things move on through the chapter, the brothers aren't just shown to be lazy. They aren't just shown to be inept. They aren't just shown to, to be apathetic. They're shown to be self-serving liars. I wonder if you noticed that. Look down to verses 29 to 34. The brothers have returned from Egypt to Jacob and they tell him what's happened. Verse 30, how they were accused of being spies. Verse 31, how they tried to persuade Joseph that they were brothers. Verse 33, how it came to be that Simeon is still in Egypt. And verse 34, why it is that they have to go back to Egypt with Benjamin. Now all of what they say is true, but notice that they miss out quite an important detail They don't mention the money. You see that? The money they found in their packs when they were on their way back from Egypt. That might sound like quite a small thing. Maybe the sort of thing that they have just forgotten about. But I think that's quite unlikely. Because think about how strongly they reacted when they found the money in verse 28. They're panicking. They're terrified, probably because they're waiting to be accused of stealing it. Now, that isn't the sort of detail you forget. So why do they not mention it to their dad? Well, because they've made the link between the money being in their pack and God judging them for selling Joseph into slavery. If they tell their dad about the money, they have to come clean about what they did to Joseph. So they're covering the money up to hide their guilt from their dad. And for the rest of the chapter, Jacob's family are shown to be more and more and more dysfunctional, more of a mess. See in verse 35, 
despite their best efforts to hide it, they all empty their packs, and all of the money's there. Things have gone from bad to worse. And that allows Jacob to join some of the dots. Just read verse 36 with me. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. Now, all Jacob's sons have told him about Joseph's disappearance was that he was eaten by a wild animal. They didn't admit any guilt for that. And all they've told him about Simeon in chapter 42 is that he's been kept hostage in Egypt, not that he's dead. And yet here, Jacob holds them responsible for both, for Joseph, for Simeon. Now, all families are messy. I guess any one of us who has any family connections can appreciate that. But this kind of level of betrayal and lying and suspicion and dysfunction and chaos, well, it's in a bit of a different league, isn't it? Things don't get any better as we carry on reading. Verse 37, Reuben tells his dad that he can kill Reuben's sons if Benjamin doesn't come back safely. It's hardly a heroic offer, isn't it? It's also a slightly foolish offer, given that Reuben's sons are Jacob's grandsons. It's an odd exchange to offer to make. And even Jacob himself is seen to be contributing to the mess. He's made Benjamin a favorite, a favorite son. That's why about this whole hoo-ha about whether Benjamin gets to go to Egypt or not is actually happening. And remember, that's exactly what he's done before with Joseph. That's what led to all the bitterness and the division in the family in the first place. Now, I've gone through that slowly, and I make no apologies for that. Because apart from the time in Egypt, pretty much everything else we are told about Jacob's family in chapter 42 of Genesis is negative. They're characterized as being lazy, apathetic, nepotistic, self-seeking, lying, cowardly, and none of them seem to even realize it. Now, it's worth asking ourselves, when we read a chapter like this, why does the camera spend so long lingering on that kind of thing, on Jacob's chaotic family? And I think there is a reason for that. See, we've already thought about the brothers' guilt for what they did to Joseph. They appreciate that they did wrong by Joseph. They appreciate that God owes them some kind of reckoning, some kind of accounting for what they did. But the chaos and the darkness and the twistedness of Jacob's family goes well beyond what they did to Joseph, doesn't it? I said a few minutes ago that we all stand guilty before God and ask the question, what are we actually guilty for? Well, I think this helps to shade that in a little bit. It helps us to see more clearly what we are guilty of before God. See, we like to think of our mistakes as just that, don't we? Mistakes. A one-off not representative of who I am. So when I asked you a few minutes ago to reflect on things that you maybe feel guilty about, that's what we default to. The reason I know that's true is because after we do something we regret, we say things like, it wasn't the real me. 
But the Bible's analysis is that the problem is much, much more deep-rooted than we realize. Each of us stand guilty before God, not just because of one-off mistakes, moments of madness, accidents, but because our mistakes are symptoms of a much bigger problem. That's the only answer to what's going on with Jacob's sons, isn't it? It's not just one-off mistakes. If it is, then it's lots of them, and it seems to be pretty much everything they do. And the problem for us is not one-off mistakes, but it's that our hearts are set against God. We're guilty, far more guilty than we even realize, because the problem isn't just one-offs. Now, I wonder what you think of that. Maybe you're not a Christian this evening, and all of that sounds very offensive. How dare someone stand behind a lectern and tell everyone that they're guilty of anything? But even our own consciences alert us to the fact that guilt does exist to a greater or lesser degree. Even if we only think of our mistakes as slip-ups, as small aberrations, we still know that what we've done is wrong. And all the Bible does is explain that by saying they aren't slip-ups, they aren't one-off mistakes, they're symptoms of a deeper-rooted chaos, a heart that is bent away from God. And for justice to be done, for things to be right, then all of that guilt has to be accounted for. There must be a reckoning. And in Genesis 42, the interesting thing is that Joseph has the power to do just that, doesn't he? He has the power to crush his brothers if he wants to. And in our situation... Shocking as it might sound, God has the power to do just that. Think right back to the very beginning of the Bible and what God told Adam and Eve would happen if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember what he said to them? He said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God had the power to do it. He had the right to do it, to snuff them out there and then. And God still has the power to do it. And he still has the right to do it, to snuff us out. Now, all of that might sound really bleak. And it is pretty bleak. We were praying before the service this evening, and that was one of my own reflections, that it's pretty full-on, it's pretty hard-hitting. But I think when you actually read through Genesis 42 and you think of where the camera lands, you see it does focus on the brokenness, the sinfulness of this group of people. And yet, the big surprise of Genesis 42 is that even though the camera spends so long focused on the guilt of Jacob's family, and even though we know that Joseph holds their lives in his hands, can make a reckoning, can account for what they've done, bring justice, 
Joseph does not use his power to give them what they deserve. We'll think about that for the rest of our time together this evening. Final point. But rather than a reckoning, guilty people are shown mercy and even set on a path towards ultimate rescue. It's a snappy heading. I think you'll agree. It's probably one of my wordiest, but I think it does the job. It is fair to say that Joseph's opening interaction with his brothers isn't very warm. And he seems to be toying with them. We thought about that a minute or two ago. But in verse 9, we're told an interesting detail that suggests something else is going on. Just look at that for a second. When Joseph sees his brothers, he remembers the dreams that he had. Remember the dreams back in chapter 37 that kind of got him into all the hot water in the first place, all of his family bowing down to him. Now, given that God has worked so clearly through dreams in Joseph's life, he's always brought them to fruition, as far as Joseph knows. And given there's only 10 of the brothers there before him, we're still missing one brother and two parents, I think it's probably fair to conclude that Joseph isn't just toying with the brothers for his own enjoyment. There's something else going on. And that explanation tallies with the way that he treats them through the rest of the chapter. So look down for a second to verse 25. And just notice what Joseph does. Let's read that again. Verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Here he has the chance to seal their death warrant, to send them away with no food. Remember, there's no food in Canaan. There's no food in all the earth. We're told that in chapter 41. And instead, what Joseph does is he shows them mercy. Fills their bags with grain and gives them provisions for the journey. And more even than that, confusingly, he gives them their money back. He doesn't give them what they deserve, which is nothing. And he even blesses them. And again, I think this applies to us in a couple of ways, a general way and a more specific way. It applies to us in that general way because it's this messed up family that become the roots of God's family, his people here on earth. God doesn't use Joseph to squash them, to bring about justice. The 12 tribes of Israel come through this miserable lot. And actually, this isn't the only place we see it. It's a recurring theme through the Old Testament, time and time and time again through the Old Testament. God's people show ourselves, and I say ourselves because we identify with them, to be a mess, to be undeserving. And yet he does not scrub them out and start again from scratch. He preserves a people for himself. And thank goodness that he does. As his people today, we benefit from that mercy. That's a big picture Bible application, but there's also a more focused application to us all here this evening. Because just like the brothers, each of us are guilty. 
guilty of rejecting God's rule over our lives. Just like the brothers, each of us deserve a reckoning or an accounting or justice to be done with that guilt. And yet, just like the brothers, each of us are shown mercy. How do I know that? Well, again, think of Genesis 2. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate from the tree. The consequences for humanity and the world were catastrophic. But they didn't die on that day, did they? God didn't scrub them out and start all over again. He showed them mercy. God still has that kind of power, the power to snuff any of us out in a second. And yet he doesn't. It might sound like a small thing to say, but the fact that any of us has life and breath is a sign of God's mercy to us. And Genesis 42 takes us even further than that. Joseph oddly or confusingly takes Simeon hostage. He sends the brothers home to get Benjamin. And it isn't quite clear what is going on in Genesis 42. But as we see things unfolding over the next few weeks, Joseph is starting them out on a journey towards full rescue. Reconciliation. That's how God's rescuer, Joseph, treats his messed up brothers. And that's how God himself treats messed up people like you and me. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. He shows us mercy. And he's even committed to giving us an opportunity to respond to him, to trust in him, and to receive that full rescue, reconciliation with him. Now, if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I mean it when I say it's absolutely wonderful that you're here with us. If you're new or you're visiting, we hope you feel really welcome. And please do stick around to chat, spend some time getting to know us at the end of the service. But I guess what I've been talking about this evening might not have sounded very uplifting or very encouraging or very inspirational. But I actually think it is, in a surprising way, because Jacob's messy family shows us that no one is beyond the mercy of God. Now, following Jesus, against popular opinion, following Jesus is not for people who have their act together. It's for people who are sinful, who are broken, whose lives are full of regret, like me, unlike you. So if you ever have thought that you're beyond the pale, that God could never have anything to do with someone with a past like mine, even with a present like mine, well, Genesis 2 should hopefully go, some, 42 should hopefully go some way to bursting that myth. And actually, from what we've thought about together this evening, the fact that you have breath in your lungs should go some way to bursting that myth. God is a merciful God. 
And he goes even further than giving you life and breath. He offers full forgiveness, reconciliation, a right relationship with God himself through trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus. And if you are a Christian, there's really just one big takeaway point I want to leave us with this evening. And that is just a picture of quite how kind God has been to us. We'll sing a song in a moment that I think kind of sums it up. The song's called, And Can It Be? And I think that's an apt question to ask when we think about God's mercy to each one of us. A kind of dumbfounded joy. That we do stand guilty before God. We do deserve far worse than we even realize. And yet he hasn't treated us as we deserve. He's shown us mercy. He set us out on the road towards ultimate rescue. That's his doing. And he gave us the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and to respond to him when nothing inherent within us warrants it. Our God is merciful. Our God is kind. Our God is absolutely wonderful. Now let's praise him for that mercy and kindness. Now let me pray for us as we close. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Father, we come before you this evening confessing our guilt before you, a holy God. We acknowledge that every day and in countless ways we reject your rule over our lives and for every area in which we can see that we've rejected you, we know that there are countless areas that we can't. And Father, we acknowledge this evening that that guilt deserves a reckoning, justice to be done, punishment, that by rights you should snuff us out. And so, God, we thank you and praise you so much that you do not treat us as our sin deserves. But instead, you show us mercy. For those of us who've already trusted in you, been recipients of that mercy, we praise you for your goodness to us. And we ask that you'd help us tonight to love you more and more. And for those of us who have yet to trust you, perhaps because we don't think we need your mercy, or perhaps because we don't think we deserve it, we ask that you would help us to see not just our need, but your abundant provision. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.